unexpected discovery to find about, outside uh, in Anunnaki. circles. A stone slab with this such is a depiction. what really happened. The artifact is on exhibit at the new and most interesting Golan Archaeological Museum in Katsurin. While the textual references and the depiction on the stone slab do not constitute conclusive evidence that Gilgamesh reached the site on his journey to the Cedar Mountains of Lebanon, there is one more intriguing clue to be considered. After the site was identified from Cedar the Tree, the Israeli archaeologist died. discovered that it was marked on captured Syrian army maps by the name Ragum el-Hiri, the most puzzling name, for it meant in Arabic, stone heap of the bobcat. The explanation for the puzzling name we suggest may well lie in the Epic of Gilgamesh, reflecting a memory of the king who fought the lions. And as we shall hear, that is just the beginning of intricate and interwound associations. Scholars have long recognized that in the lore of diverse nations, the same theme, the same basic tale appears and reappears, though under different guises, names, and localities. It is thus perhaps no wonder that the carved basalt stone on which Gilgamesh is depicted fighting with the lions was discovered near a village bearing the name In Samsung, Samson's Spring. For, it will be recalled, Samson also fought and killed a lion with his bare hands. That was sung 2,000 years after Gilgamesh, and certainly not on the Golan Heights. Is the village's name, then, just a coincidence, or the lingering memory of a visitor called Gilgamesh becoming Samson? Of greater significance is the association with King Carrot, Though the venue of the Canaanite tale is not stated, it is presumed by many, e.g. Cyrus H. Gordon, notes on the legend of Kerat, that the combined name for the king and his capital, in fact, identified the island of Crete. There, according to Cretan and Greek legends, civilization began when the god Zeus saw Europa, the beautiful daughter of a king of Phoenicia, present-day Lebanon, and taking the form of a bull, abducted her and swam with her on his back across the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Crete. There he had three sons by her, among them Minus, who in time became the one with whom the beginning of Cretan civilization is associated. Thwarted in his aspirations to the throne, Minus appealed to Poseidon, god of the seas, to bestow upon him a sign of divine favor. In response, Poseidon made a divine bowl, pure white, appear from the sea. Minus vowed to offer the beautiful bull as a sacrifice to the god, but he was so enthralled by it that instead he kept it to himself. In punishment, the god made the king's wife fall in love and mate with the bull. The offspring was the legendary Minotaur, the half-man, half-bull creature. Minus then commissioned the divine craftsman Daedalus to build in the Cretan capital, Gnosis, an underground maze from which the bull-man would be unable to escape. The maze was called the Labyrinth. A huge stone sculpture of a bull's horns does greet the visitor to the excavated remains of Gnosis. 
but not the remains of the labyrinth. Yet its memory and its circular shape as a maze of concentric circular walls with passages blocked by radials have not been forgotten. It certainly resembles the layout of the Golan site, and it calls for going back to the Epic of Gilgamesh for the hero's encounter with the Bull of Heaven. As the Epic tells it, during the final night before attempting to enter the Cedar Forest, Gilgamesh envisioned a rocket ship thunderously rising in a fiery ascent from the landing place. The next morning they found the hidden entryway into the forbidden enclosure, but no sooner did they start on their way in than a robotic guardian blocked their way. It was mighty, its teeth as the teeth of a dragon, its face of a ferocious lion, its advance like the onrushing headwaters, a radiating beam emanated from its forehead, devouring trees and bushes. From its killing force, none could escape. Seeing the predicament of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, Utu or Shamash, down from the sky spoke to the heroes. He advised them not to run, but instead to draw near the monster as soon as the god would blow a swirling wind whose dust would blind the guardian. As soon as that happened, Enkidu struck and killed it. Ancient artists depicted on cylinder seals, Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and Utu or Shamash, together with the menacing robot, its depiction brings to mind the biblical description of the angels with the whirling sword that God placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to make sure that the expelled Adam and Eve would not re-enter it. The fight was also watched by Inanna, later known as Ishtar, the twin sister of Utu or Shamash. She had quite a record of enticing human males to spend a night with her, a night which they rarely survived. Captivated by the beauty of Gilgamesh as he bathed naked in a nearby river or waterfall, she invited him, Come, Gilgamesh, be my lover. But knowing the record, he turned her down. Enraged by this insulting refusal, Ishtar summoned the Bull of Heaven to smite Gilgamesh. Running for their lives, the duo rushed back to Uruk, but the Bull of Heaven caught up with them on the banks of the Euphrates River. At the moment of mortal danger, it was again Enkidu who managed to strike and kill the Bull of Heaven. Inanna, or Ishtar, enraged, sent up a wail to heaven, demanding that the two comrades be put to death. Though temporarily spared, Enkidu died first. Then so did Gilgamesh, after a second journey that took him to a spaceport in the Sinai Peninsula. What was the Bull of Heaven? Good Anna in Sumerian. Many students of the epic, such as Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha von Deschen in Hamlet's Mill, have come to the conclusion that the epic's events taking place on earth are but a mirror image of events taking place in heaven. Utu or Shamash is the sun. Inanna or Ishtar is what she was later called in Greek and Roman times, Venus. The menacing guardian of the cedar mountains with the face of a lion is the constellation of Leo, the lion, and the Bull of Heaven, the celestial group of stars that has been called, since Sumerian times, the constellation of the Bull, Taurus. There are, indeed, Mesopotamian depictions with the lion or bull theme, and as was first remarked upon by Willie Hartner, the earliest history of the constellations in the Near East, 
In the fourth millennium BC, the Sumerians would have observed the two constellations in key zodiacal positions, the constellation of the bull, Taurus, as the constellation of the spring equinox, and the constellation of the lion, Leo, as that of the summer solstice. The attributing of zodiacal connotations to epic events on Earth, as told by the Sumerians, implies that they had such celestial knowledge. In the fourth millennium BC, some three millennia before the usually presumed time of the grouping of stars and the constellations, and the introduction of the twelve zodiacal ones by the Greeks. In fact, the Greek savants of Asia Minor themselves explained that the knowledge came to them from the Chaldeans of Mesopotamia, and as Sumerian astronomical texts and pictorial depictions attest, the credit should go to them. Their names and symbols for the zodiacal constellations remained unchanged to our time. The Sumerian zodiacal lists began with Taurus, which was indeed the constellation from which the sun was observed rising at dawn on the day of the spring equinox in the fourth millennium BC. It was called in Sumerian, Gud Anna, Bull of Heaven, or Heavenly Bull, the very same term used in the Epic of Gilgamesh for the divine creature that Inanna, or Ishtar, had summoned from the heavens, and that the two comrades slew. Did the slaying represent or symbolize an actual celestial event, circa 2900 BC? While the possibility cannot be ruled out, the historical record indicates that major events and changes did occur on Earth at that time, and the slaying of the Bull of Heaven represented an omen, a heavenly omen, predicting or even triggering events on Earth. For the better part of the fourth millennium BC, the Sumerian civilization was not only the greatest on Earth, but also the only one. But circa 3100 BC, the civilization of the Nile, Egypt, and Nubia joined the one on the Euphrates-Tigris rivers. Did this split up on Earth, alluded to by the biblical tale of the Tower of Babel and the end of the era when mankind spoke one tongue, find expression in the description in the Gilgamesh epic of the coup de grace dealt the bull of heaven by the tearing off of its foreleg by Enkidu? Egyptian celestial zodiacal depictions indeed associated the beginning of their civilization with the cutting off of the forepart of the constellation of the bull. As we have detailed in the wars of gods and men, Inanna, or Ishtar, had expected at that time to become mistress of the new civilization. But it was, literally and symbolically, torn away from her. She was partly appeased for the third civilization, that of the Indus Valley was put under her Egypt, circa 2900 B.C. As significant as celestial omens had been for the gods, they were even more consequential to mortals on Earth, witness the fate that befell the two comrades. Enkidu, an artificially created being, died as a mortal, and Gilgamesh, two-thirds divine, could not escape mortality. Though he went on a second journey, enduring hardships and dangers, and though he did find the plant of everlasting youth, he returned to Uruk empty-handed. According to the Sumerian king list, the divine Gilgamesh, whose father was a human, the high priest of the temple precinct, ruled 126 years. Urlugal, son of Gilgamesh, ruled after him. We can almost hear the son of Gilgamesh crying out, as did the sons of King Karas, 
How could an offspring of hell, the merciful one die? Shall a divine one die? But Gilgamesh, though more than a demigod, tangled with his fate. His was the age of the bull, and he slew it. And his fate, a fate made in heaven, changed from a chance for immortality to that of a mortal's death. A thousand years after the probable stay of Gilgamesh at the Golan site, it was visited by another ancient VIP, who also saw fate written in the zodiacal constellations. He was Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, and the time, by our calculations, was about 1900 B.C. A question that is often ignored regarding the megalithic structures around the globe is, why have they been constructed where they are? The location obviously had to do with their particular purpose. The great pyramids of Giza, we have suggested in our writings, served as anchors for a landing corridor leading to a spaceport in the Sinai Peninsula, and were emplaced precisely because of that link on their 30th parallel north. Stonehenge, it was suggested by leading astronomers, was erected where it is, because it is precisely there that its astronomical functions could combine both solar and lunar observations. Until more might come to light concerning the Golan Circle, the most likely reason for its being where it is was that it lay astride one of the few linkways that connected two major international routes. In antiquity and still now, the King's Highway, which ran along the hills east of the Jordan River, and the Way of the Sea, which ran on the west along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The two routes connected Mesopotamia and Egypt, Asia and Africa, be it for peaceful trade or military invasions. The links between the two routes were dictated by geography and topography. At the Golan site, the crossing would be made on either side of the Sea of Galilee, Lake Kinneret, the preferred one, then and now, is the one on the north, where the bridge has retained its ancient name, the Bridge of the Daughters of Jacob. The Golan site was thus located where travelers from different nations and diverse homelands could stop and scan the heavens for omens to seek out clues regarding their fate, perhaps to mingle at a neutral site because it was sacred, and there negotiate issues of war or peace based on Biblical and Mesopotamian data, we believe that this was what Jacob had used the site for. The story began two centuries earlier, in Sumer, and it began not with Jacob's grandfather Abraham, but with Jacob's great-grandfather, Terah. His name suggests that he was an oracle priest, Tiru. The family's care to be known as Ebri, Hebrew people, suggests to us that they consider themselves to be Nippurians, people from the city of Nippur that in Sumerian was rendered Ni-Ibu, the beautiful or pleasant abode of crossing. The religious and scientific center of Sumer, Nippur, was the site of the Duranti, the bond heaven-earth, located in the city's sacred precinct. It was the focal point for the preservation, study, and interpretation of accumulated astronomical, calendrical, and celestial knowledge. And Abraham's father, Terah, was one of its priests. Circa 2100 BC, Terah was transferred to Ur. The time was a period known to Sumerologists as Ur the Third. 
For it was then that Ur, for the third time, became the capital not only of Sumer, and not only of an enlarged political entity called Sumer and Akkad, but also of a virtual empire that flourished and was held together not by force of arms, but by a superior culture, a unified pantheon, what is known as religion, a capable administration, and not least of all, a thriving trade. Ur was also the cult center of the moon god Nanar, later known by the Semitic people as Sin. Rapidly developing events in Sumer and beyond triggered first the transfer of Tira to Ur, and then to a distant city called Haran. Situated on the upper Euphrates and its tributaries, the city served as a major crossroads and trading post, which its name, needing the caravanry, indicated. Founded by Sumerian merchants, Haran also boasted a large temple to the moon god, so much so that the city was looked upon as an Ur away from Ur. On these transfers, Tira took with him his family. The move to Haran included Abram, as he was then called, Tira's firstborn, a son called Nahor, the two sons' wives, Sarai, later renamed Sarah, and Milcah, and Tira's grandson Lot, the son of Abram's brother Haran, who had died in Ur. They dwelt there in Haran many years, according to the Bible, and it was there that Tira died when he was two hundred and five years old. It was after that that God said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and out of thy birthplace, and from thy father's dwelling place unto the land that I will show thee. There I will make thee unto a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make great thy name. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all the people in their household, and all of their belongings, and went to the land of Canaan. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. His brother Nahor stayed behind with his family in Haran. Acting on divine instructions, Abram moved quickly in Canaan to establish a base in the Negev, the arid area of Canaan bordering the Sinai Peninsula. On a visit to Egypt, he was received in the Pharaoh's court. Back in Canaan, he dealt with the local rulers. He then played a role in an international conflict, known in the Bible, Genesis 14, as the War of the Kings. It was after that that God promised Abram that his seed should inherit and rule the lands between the brook of Egypt and the Euphrates River. Doubting the promise, Abram pointed out that he and his wife Sarai had no children. So God told Abram not to worry. Look now toward the heavens, he told him, and count the stars if you can. So numerous shall be thy seed. But Sarai remained barren even after that. So at her suggestion, Abram slept with her handmaiden, Hagar, who did bear him a son, Ishmael. And then miraculously, after the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the couple's names were changed to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham, then aged 100, had a son by his wife Sarah, aged 90. Though not the firstborn, Sarah's son Isaac, was the legitimate heir under the Sumerian succession rules that the patriarch followed, for he was a son of his father's half-sister, the daughter of my father but not of my mother, Abraham said of Sarah, Genesis chapter 20, verse 12.
It was after the death of Sarah, his lifelong companion, that Abraham, old and advanced in years, 137 years by our calculations, became concerned about his unmarried son Isaac. Fearing that Isaac would end up marrying a Canaanite, he sent the overseer of his household to Haran to find there a bride for Isaac from among the relatives that had remained there. Arriving at the dwelling village of Nahor, he met at the watering well Rebekah, who turned out to be Nahor's granddaughter and ended up going to Canaan to become Isaac's wife. Twenty years after they got married, Rebekah gave birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was first to get married, taking two wives right off, both of them Hittite lassies. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. The troubles are not detailed in the Bible, but the situation between mother and daughters-in-law was so bad that Rebekah told Isaac, I am disgusted with life on account of the Hittite women. Should Jacob too marry such a Hittite woman of the local females, what good would life be to me? So Isaac called Jacob and instructed him to go to Haran, to his mother's family, to find there a bride. Heeding his father's words, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Of Jacob's journey from the south of Canaan to distant Haran, the Bible reports only one episode, though a very significant one. It was the nighttime vision by Jacob as he came upon a certain place of a stairway to heaven on which angels of the Lord were ascending and descending. Awakened, Jacob realized that he had come upon a place of the Elohim and a gateway to heaven. He marked the place by setting up there a commemorative stone and named the site Bethel, the house of El, the Lord. And then by a route that is not stated, he continued to Haran. On the city's outskirts he saw shepherds gathering with their flocks at a well in the field. Addressing them, Jacob inquired whether they knew Laban, his mother's brother. Indeed, we know him, the shepherd said. And here comes his daughter Rachel, shepherding his flocks. Bursting into tears, Jacob introduced himself as the son of Rebekah, her aunt. No sooner did Laban hear the news than he, too, came running, hugging and kissing his nephew, inviting him to stay with him and meet his other daughter, the older Leah. Marriage was clearly in the father's mind, but Jacob fell in love with Rachel and offered to work for Laban seven years in lieu of a dowry. But on the night of the wedding, after the banquet, Laban substituted Leah for Rachel in the bridal bed. When Jacob discovered the bride's identity in the morning, Laban was nonplussed. Here, he said, we do not marry off the younger daughter before her elder sister. Why don't you work for me for another seven years and then marry Rachel, too? Still in love with Rachel, Jacob agreed. After seven years, he married Rachel. But the wily Laban held on to the hard worker and capable shepherd that Jacob was, and would not let him go. To keep Jacob from leaving, he let him start raising his own flock. But the more Jacob succeeded, the more were Laban's sons grumbling with envy. And so it was, when Laban and his sons were away to shear their flocks of sheep, that Jacob gathered his wives and children and flocks, and fled Haran, and he crossed the river, the Euphrates, and set his course toward the Mount of Gilead. On the third day it was told to Laban that Jacob had escaped. So he took his kinfolk with him and pursued after Jacob. 
and after seven days he caught up with him at the mound of Gilead. Gilad, the everlasting stone heap in Hebrew, the site of the circular observatory in the Golan. The encounter started with bitter exchanges and reciprocal accusation. It ended with a peace treaty. In the manner of boundary treaties of the time, Jacob selected a stone and erected it to be a witnessing pillar, to mark the boundary beyond which Laban would not cross into Jacob's domains, nor would Jacob cross to Laban's domains. Such boundary stones, called Kuduru in Akkadian, because of their rounded tops, have been discovered at various Near Eastern sites. As a rule, they were inscribed with details of the treaty and included the invoking of each side's gods as witnesses and guarantors. Adhering to the custom, Laban called for the god of Abraham and the gods of Nahor to guarantee the treaty. Apprehensive, Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then he added his own touch to the occasion and the place. And Jacob said to his sons, Gather stones. And they gathered stones and arranged them in a heap. And Jacob called the stone heap Galeb. By a mere change of pronunciation from Galab to Galeb, Jacob changed the meaning of the name from its long-standing, the everlasting stone heap, to the stone heap of witnessing. How certain can we be that the place was that of the Golan Circle site? Here, we believe, is the convincing final clue. In his oath of treaty, Jacob also described the site as Hamitzvah, the observatory. The Book of Jubilees, an extra-biblical book that recounted the biblical tales from varied early sources, added a postscript to the recorded event, and Jacob made there a heap for a witness, wherefore the name of the place is called the Heap of Witness. But before they used to call the land of Gilead the land of Raphaim, and thus we are back to the enigmatic Golan site, and its nickname, Gilgal Raphaim. The Kuduru boundary stones that have been found in the Near East bore, as a rule, not just the terms of the agreement and the names of the gods invoked as its guarantors, but also the gods' celestial symbols sometimes of the sun and moon and planets, sometimes of the zodiacal constellations, all twelve of them. For that, since the earliest Sumerian times, was the count twelve of the zodiacal constellations, as evidenced by their names. Gudana, heavenly bull, Taurus, Mashtaba, twins, Gemini, Dub, pincers, tongs, Cancer, Ergula, Lion, Leo, Absin, whose father was Sin, the maiden, Virgo, Zibaana, heavenly fate, the scales, Libra, Gertab, which claws and cuts, Scorpio, Pabil, the defender, the archer, Sagittarius, Sohur Mush, goatfish, Capricorn, Gu, lord of the waters, Aquarius, Sema, Fishes, Pisces, Kumal, Field-Dweller, the Ram, Aries. While not all the symbols depicting the twelve zodiacal constellations have survived from Sumerian times, or even Babylonian times, they have been found on Egyptian monuments in identical depictions and names. 
Should anyone doubt that Abraham, a son of the astronomer priest Chira, was aware of the twelve zodiacal houses when God told him to observe the skies and see therein the future? As the stars you observe in the heavens, so shall thy offspring be, God told Abraham. And when his first son was born by the handmaiden, Hagar, God blessed the boy, Ishmael, by God heard, by this prophecy. As for Ishmael, indeed I have heard him, by this do I bless him. I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him exceedingly. Of him twelve chieftains will be born, his shall be a great nation. Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. With that prophetic blessing linked to the starry heavens as observed by Abraham, does the Bible for the first time record the number 12 and its significance? It then relates Genesis chapter 25, that Ishmael's sons, each a chief of a tribal state, indeed numbered 12. Listing them by their names, the Bible emphasizes, those were the sons of Ishmael according to their courts and strongholds, 12 chieftains, each to his own nation. Their domains encompassed Arabia and the desert land to its north. The next time the Bible employs the number 12 is enlisting Jacob's 12 sons at the time when he was back at his father's estate in Hebron. And the number of the sons of Jacob was 12, the Bible states in Genesis chapter 35, listing them by the names that later became familiar as names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Six by Leah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, two by Rachel, Joseph, Benjamin, two by Bilhah, Rachel's handmaiden, Dan, Naphtali, and two by Zilpah, Leah's handmaiden, Gad, and Asher. There is, however, sleight of hand in this list. This was not the original count of the twelve children who came back with Jacob to Canaan. Benjamin, the youngest, was born by Rachel when the family was already back in Canaan, in Bethlehem, where she died while giving birth. Yet the number of Jacob's children was twelve before that. The last child born by Leah was a daughter, Dinah. The list, perhaps by more than a coincidence, was thus made up of eleven males and one female, matching the list of zodiacal constellations that is made up of one female, Virgo, the virgin, and eleven male ones. The zodiacal implications of the twelve children of Jacob, renamed Israel after he had wrestled with a divine being when crossing the Jordan River, can be discerned twice in the continuing biblical narrative. Once, when Joseph, a master of having and solving dream omens, boasted to his brothers that he had dreamed that the sun and the moon, the elder Jacob and Leah, and eleven Kokavim, were bowing to him. The word is usually translated stars, but the term, stemming from the Akkadian, served equally to denote constellations. With Joseph, the total added up to twelve, the implication that his was a superior constellation, annoyed greatly his brothers. The next time was when Jacob, old and dying, called his twelve sons to bless them and foretell their future. Known as the prophecy of Jacob, the last words of the patriarch begin by associating the eldest son, Reuben, with Az, the zodiacal constellation of Ares, which by then was the constellation of the spring equinox instead of Taurus. Simeon and Levi were lumped together as the twins, Gemini. 
because they had killed many men when they revenged the rape of their sister, Jacob prophesied. They would be dispersed among the other tribes and forfeit their own domains. Judah was compared to a lion, Leo, and foreseen as the holder of the royal scepter, a prediction of Judea's kingship. Zebulun was envisioned as a dweller of the seas, Aquarius, which he indeed became. The predictions of the twelve tribal sons' future continued, linked by name and symbol to the zodiacal constellation. Last were Rachel's sons. Joseph was depicted as the bullman, Sagittarius, and the last one, Benjamin, having substituted for his sister Dinah, Virgo, was described as a predator that feeds off others. The strict adherence to the number twelve, emulating the twelve houses of the zodiac, involved another sleight of hand that usually escapes notice. After the exodus and the division of the promised land among the twelve tribes, they again included some rearrangement. Suddenly, the account of the twelve tribes who shared territories lists the two sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. The list, nevertheless, stated twelve, for, as prophesied by Jacob, the tribes of Simeon and Levi did not share in the territorial distribution, and as foretold were dispersed among the other tribes. The requirement, the sanctity of the celestial twelve, was again preserved. Archaeologists excavating the remains of Jewish synagogues in the Holy Land are sometimes puzzled to find the floors of such synagogues decorated with the zodiacal circles of twelve constellations depicted by their traditional symbols. They tend to view the finds as aberrations resulting from Greek and Roman influences in the centuries before Christianity. Such an attitude, stemming from the belief that the practice was prohibited by the Old Testament, ignores the historical record, the Hebrews' familiarity with the zodiacal constellations, and their association with predictions of the future, with fate. For generations, and to this day, one can hear the cries of Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, at Jewish weddings or when a boy is circumcised. Ask anyone what it means, and the answer will be, it means good luck. Let the couple or boy have good luck with them. Few realize, however, that though that is what is intended, that is not what the phrase means. Mazel Tov literally means a good or favorable zodiacal constellation. The term comes from the Akkadians, the first or mother Semitic language, in which Manzalu meant station, the zodiacal station in which the sun was seen to station itself on the day of wedding or birth. Such an association of one's zodiacal house with one's fate is in vogue through horoscopic astrology, which starts by establishing through the date of birth what sign one is, a Pisces, a Cancer, or any of the other twelve zodiacal constellations. Going back, we could say that according to the prophecy of Jacob, Judah was a Leo, Gad a Scorpio, and Naphtali a Capricorn. The observation of the heavens for fateful indications, a task performed by a corps of astronomer priests, assumed a key role in royal decisions during Babylonian times. The fate of the king, the fate of the land, and of nations were divined from the position of the planets in a particular zodiacal constellation. Royal decisions awaited the word of astronomer priests. Was the moon expected in Sagittarius, obscured by clouds? Had the comet seen in Taurus moved on to another constellation? 
What was the meaning for the king of the land of the observation that on the same evening Jupiter rose in Sagittarius, Mercury in Gemini, and Saturn in Scorpio? Records literally requiring hundreds of tablets reveal that those heavenly phenomena were interpreted to foretell invasions, famines, flooding, civil unrest, or on the other hand, long life for the king, a stable dynasty, victory in war, prosperity. Most of the records of such observations were written down as straight prose on clay tablets. Sometimes the astrological almanacs, as horoscopical handbooks, were illustrated with the symbols of the relevant zodiacal constellations. In all instances, fate was deemed to be indicated by the heavens. Today's horoscopic astrology's roots go back well beyond the Babylonians, the Chaldeans of Greek report. Coupled with the 12-month calendar, the notion that fate and the zodiac are two aspects of the same course of events undoubtedly began at least when the calendar began, in Nippur, in 3760 BC, which is when the count of the Jewish calendar began. That such an association is really that old can be gleaned, in our opinion, from one of the Sumerian constellation names, that of Ziba'ana. The term understood to mean heavenly fate literally means life decision in the heavens as well as the heavenly scales of life. This was a concept that was recorded in Egypt in the Book of the Dead. It was a belief that one's hope for an eternal afterlife depends on the weighing of his heart on the Day of Judgment. The scene was magnificently depicted on the papyrus of Ani, where the god Anubis is shown weighing the heart in a balance in the god Thoth, the divine scribe, recording the result on a palette. An unsolved puzzle in Jewish traditions is why the biblical Lord had chosen the seventh month, Tishrei, as the month in which the Hebrew New Year was to begin. Rather than starting it in the month counted in Mesopotamia, as the first month, Nisan. If it was, as has been suggested, by way of an explanation, a desire to enforce a clear break from the Mesopotamian veneration of stars and planets, why still call it the seventh month, and not renumber it the first month? It seems to us that the opposite is true, and that the answer lies in the very name of the constellation, Ziba'ana, and its connotation of the scales of fate. We believe that the crucial clue is the calendrical link with the zodiac. At the time of the Exodus, mid-2nd millennium BC, the first constellation, that of the spring equinox, was Aries, not Taurus anymore. And starting with Aries, the constellation of the heavenly scales of life was indeed the seventh, the month in which the Jewish New Year was to begin, the month in which it would be decided in heaven who was to live and who was to die who is to be healthy, or to be sick, to be richer, or poor, happy, or unhappy, was the month that paralleled the zodiacal month of the celestial scales, and in the heavens, faith, and twelve stations. The twelve-part zodiac and its antiquity stir up two puzzles. Who originated it, and why was the celestial circle divided into twelve parts? 
The answers require the crossing of a threshold to a realization that underlying the seemingly astrological significance of dividing the heavens into 12 parts is a highly sophisticated astronomy, an astronomy, in fact, so advanced that man, by himself, could not have possessed it when this division of the celestial circle began. In its annual orbit around the sun, the sun appears to be rising each month, a twelfth part of the year, in a different station. But the one that counts most, the one that was deemed crucial in antiquity, and which determines the transition from age to age, from Taurus to Aries to Pisces, and soon to Aquarius, is the one in which the sun is seen rising on the day of the spring equinox. As it happens, the Earth and its annual orbit around the sun does not return to the exact same spot, owing to a phenomenon called precession. There is a slight retardation. It accumulates to one degree every 72 years. The retardation, assuming each of the 12 segments to be equal, 30 degrees each, thus requires 2,160 years, 72 times 30, to execute a shift from sunrise on equinox day against the starry background of one zodiacal constellation, e.g. Taurus, to the one before it, i.e. Aries. While the Earth orbits the sun in a counterclockwise direction, the retardation causes the day of the equinox to shift backwards. Now, even with the longer longevity in Sumerian or Biblical times, Tira, 205, Abraham, 175, it would have taken a lifetime to notice a retardation of one, 72 years, or two, 144 years, degrees. A highly unlikely achievement without the advanced astronomical equipment that would be needed. So much more, the ability to realize and verify a complete zodiacal age shift of 2,160 years. Even the pre-Diluvian patriarchs, with what scholars consider fantastic longevity, 969 years for the record holder Methuselah, and 930 for Adam, did not live long enough to observe a full zodiacal period. Noah, the hero of the deluge, lived a mere 950 years, yet Sumerian recollections of the event named the zodiacal constellation Leo, in which it had happened. This was only part of the impossible knowledge possessed by the Sumerians. How could they have known all that they did? They themselves provided the answer. All that we know was taught to us by the Anunnaki, those who from heaven to earth came. And they, coming from another planet with a vast orbital period, and the longevity in which one year encompassed 3,600 of earthlings, had no difficulty discerning procession and devising the twelve-part zodiac. In a series of texts which formed the basis of ancient science and religion, and which were rendered later on in other tongues, including the Biblical Hebrew, the Sumerians' tales of the Anunnaki, of the ancient gods, have been the stuff of which mythology was made. In the Western cultures, the mythology that jumps first to mind is that of the Greeks. But it, as all the ancient mythologies and divine pantheons of all the nations, 
all over the world, stemmed from the original Sumerian belief and text. There was a time, the Sumerians told, when civilized man was not yet on earth, when animals were only wild and undomesticated, and crops were not yet cultivated. At that long ago time, there arrived on earth a group of fifty Anunnaki, led by a leader whose name was Ea, meaning whose home is water. They journeyed from their home planet Nibiru, planet of crossing, and reaching earth splashed down in the waters of the Persian Gulf. A text known to scholars as the myth of Ea and the earth describes how that first group waded ashore, finding themselves in a marshland. Their first task was to drain the marshes, clear river channels, check out food sources found to be fish and fowl. They then began to make bricks from the clay of the soil and established the first ever settlement on Earth by extraterrestrials. They named the habitat Iridu, which meant home in the faraway, or home away from home. That name is the origin of the name Earth in some of the oldest languages, the time 445,000 years ago. The astronauts' mission was to obtain gold by extracting it from the waters of the Gulf, gold needed for survival on Nibiru. For there, the planet was losing its atmosphere and thus also its internal heat, slowly endangering continued life on Nibiru. But the plan proved unworkable, and the leaders back home decided that gold could be obtained only the hard way, by mining it where it was in abundance. In southeastern Africa, the new plan called for a substantial increase, and in time they numbered 600. There was also a need for an elaborate operation of shipping out from Earth the refined gold and bringing in varied supplies. For that, 300 additional Nubiruans were employed as a gigi, those who observe and see, or a gigi, operating a gigi. orbiting platforms and shuttlecraft. Nibiru's ruler, On, the Heavenly One, Anu in Akkadian, came to Earth to supervise the expanded presence and operations. He brought along with him two of his children, his son, Enlil, Lord of the Command, a strict disciplinarian to serve as chief of operations, and a daughter, Ninma, Mighty Lady, Chief Medical Officer. The division of duties between the pioneer Ea and the newly arrived in Lales proved tricky, and at a certain moment of impasse, Anu was willing to stay on Earth and let one of his sons act as viceroy on Nibiru. In the end, the three drew lots. Anu returned to reign on Nibiru, and Lil's lot was to stay in the area of the original landing and expand it to an Edin, home of the righteous ones. His task was to establish additional settlements, each with a specific function, a spaceport, a mission control center, a metallurgical center, a medical center, or as landing beacons. And Aya's lot was to organize the mining operations in southeastern Africa, a task for which he, as an outstanding scientist, was not unsuited. That the task was within his competence did not mean that Ea liked the assignment away from Edin. So to compensate him for the transfer, he was given the title name Enki, Lord of Earth. Enlil might have thought that it was just a gesture, 
Ea or Enki, however, took the title more seriously, though both were sons of An. They were only half-brothers. Ea or Enki was the first-born son, and normally would have followed his father on the throne. But Enlil was a son born to Anu by a half-sister of his, and according to the succession rules on Nibiru, that made Enlil the legal heir, even if not first-born. Now the two half-brothers found themselves on another planet, facing a potential conflict. If the mission to Earth would become an extended affair, perhaps even a permanent colonization of another planet, who would be in supreme authority, the Lord of Earth or the Lord of the Command? The matter became an acute problem for Enki in view of the presence on Earth of his son Marduk, as well as a little son, the nurse. So while the former was born Republican to Enki by his official consort, the latter was born to Enlil on the by the half-sister Min Ma. Trump when both were unmarried, Enlil married Enlil Min Ma never married, and that gave Ninurta precedence over Marduk and the line of succession. Unabashed philanderer that he was, Enki decided to remedy the situation by having sex with his half-sister, too, hoping also to have a son by her. The lovemaking produced a daughter instead. Unrelenting, Enki lost no time in sleeping with the daughter as soon as she matured. But she, too, bore a daughter. Ninma had to temporarily immobilize Enki to put an end to his conjugal attempt. Though he could not attain a son by a half-sister, Enki was not lacking other male offspring, in addition to Marduk, son of the pure mound, who had that also come from the view. There were the brothers, insurrection Nurgut, charge if you Walker, wake the Nibble, up and the do fire, your job, please, Nagao, thank you, bye. Prince of the Great Waters, and Amuzi, son who is life. It is not certain that all of them were in fact mothered by Enki's official spouse, Ninti, Lady Earth. It is virtually certain that the sixth son, Ningish Sida, Lord of the Artifact or Tree of Life, was the result of a liaison between Enki and Enlil's granddaughter, Irashkigal, when she was a passenger on a ship on the way from Ibin to Africa. A Sumerian cylinder seal depicted Enki and his son. Once Enlil had married his official consort, a young nurse who was given the epithet name Ninlil, Lady of the Command, he never wavered in his fidelity to her. They had Make sure you sons, don't forget to lock up the 160-plus insurrectionist traitors in our Congress. And a younger son, Ishkur, As you may have noticed in our Constitution, clearly states Adad, no fucking traitors can serve in office. This paucity of offspring compared to Enki's clan might explain why the three children of Nanar, or Sin, and his spouse, Ningal, great lady, were quickly included in the leadership of the Anunnaki, in spite of their being three generations removed from Anu. They were the previously mentioned Ereshkigal, mistress of the Great Land, and the twins Utu, the shiny one, and Inanna, An's beloved. The Shamash, sun god, and Ishtar, Astarte, or Venus, of later pantheons. At the peak of their presence on Earth, the Anunnaki numbered 600, and the texts named quite a number of them, as often as not indicating their roles or functions. The very first text, dealing with Enki's initial splashdowns, names some of his lieutenants and the tasks assigned to them. 
the governors of each of the settlements established by the immunity were named, as were all ten antediluvian rulers in the Eden. The female offspring born as a result of Enki's shenanigans were identified, as were their assigned husbands. Everybody call Congress 202-224-3121 and the White House 202-456-1111. Demand they remove from office and prosecute all these insurrectionist Republicans immediately, if not two and a half fucking years ago. The gods were fully cognizant of genealogies and the changing generations. There existed as part of the secret knowledge kept in temples godless, in which the Anunnaki gods were listed in genealogical or generational succession. Some such discovered lists named no fewer than 23 divine couples who were the precursors of Anu, and thus of Enlil and Enki on the Biru. Some lists just named the Anunnaki gods in chronological succession. Others carefully noted the name of the Divine Mother alongside the Divine Father's name, for who the Mother was determined the offspring's status under the rules of succession. Towering above them all was always a circle of twelve great gods, the forerunner of the twelve Olympians of the Greek pantheon. Beginning with the olden gods, then changing with the times and the generations, the composition of the circle of twelve varied, but always remained twelve. As someone dropped off, another was added instead. As someone had to be elevated in rank, someone else had to be demoted. The Sumerians depicted their gods wearing distinctive horned caps, and we have suggested that the number of pairs of such horns reflected the numerical rank of the deities. The ranking in the original Sumerian pantheon began with 60, the base number in Sumerian mathematics for Anu, and continued with 50 for the legal successor and Lil, 40 for Enki, 30 for Nanar or Sin, 20 for Utu or Shamash, and 10 for Ishkur or Adad. The female component was given the ranks 55, 45, 35, and 25 for the spouses Antu, Ninlil, Ninki, and Ningal, then 15 for the unmarried Ninma, and 5 for the single Inanna, or Ishtar, reflecting the generational changes, the latter in time attained the rank 15, and Ninma dropped to 5. It is noteworthy that the two contenders for the succession on Earth, Ninurta and Marduk, were kept off the initial Olympian list, but when the contest heated up, the Council of the Gods recognized Ninurta as the legal successor, and assigned to him the rank of 50, the same as that of his father in Lil. Marduk, on the other hand, was given the low rank of ten. These rankings were considered divine secrets, revealed only to selected priestly initiates. The tablets on which the secret numbers of the gods were inscribed, such as tablet K.170 from the Temple of Nineveh, contained a strict prohibition against showing it to the Lamudu'u, the uninitiated, Frequently, information about the gods was recorded without naming them by their names. Instead, their secret numbers were used. For example, the god 30, for Nanar, for Sin. One known table identifies the great gods by parentage and rank, highlighting the twelve great gods. But why twelve? The answer, we believe, 
lies in another major problem that the Anunnaki faced once they changed their mission from a one-time mineral extracting expedition to a long-term settlement with almost a thousand of them involved. From their viewpoint, they had come from a planet with a normal orbit to one that crazily runs around the sun, orbiting the sun 3,600 times in one Nibiru year, one orbital period. Besides the physical adjustments, there was a need somehow to relate Earth time to Nibiru time. Establishing their sophisticated equipment at Mission Control Center in Nippur, a facility called Duranti, Bond Heaven-Earth, they certainly became aware of the gradual retardation that we call precession, and realized that the Earth, besides the orbital fast year, also had another longer cycle, the 25,920 years it took the Earth to return to the same heavenly Here's spot, a, shout out to a cycle all my that came to be known friends. as the Great you know Year. As depictions on cylinder seals show, the, the Anunnaki considered the family of the sun the to consist of 12 members, the, right word, the sun in the center, or the moon for reasons which were given, and nine planets we know of at present, and one more, their own planet, Nibiru. To them, this number 12 was a basic number to be applied in all celestial matters affecting the bond heaven-earth, including the division of the starry circle around the sun. Using their detailed sky chart, they grouped the stars in each sky segment into constellations. What shall they name them? Why not after their very own leaders? Here was Ea, whose home is water, who had splashed down to earth in the waters of the Persian Gulf, who loved to sail the marshes in a boat, who filled the lakes with fish. They honored they him by naming accordingly it. two constellations, those of the water, various, uh -huh. and the fishes, now Pisces. In Sumerian times, he was so depicted I on cylinder seals, and the priests that oversaw his worship were dressed as fishmen. They lived forceful, strong-headed, and frequently compared to a bull, was honored with naming his constellation as that of the bull, Taurus. Ninma, desired but never married, had the constellation Virgo named for her. Ninurta, often called in Lil's form of warrior, was honored with the bow. Sagittarius. Ea's firstborn, stubborn and hard-headed, was likened to a roaming ram, Ares. And when the twins, Utu or Shamash, and Inanna or Ishtar were born, it was only befitting that a constellation, Gemini, the twins, be named in their honor. In recognition of Enlil's and Utu's roles in the Anunnaki's space activities, the Enlilite priests dressed as Eaglemen, as the hierarchical ranks changed, and as second and third generation Anunnaki joined the scene on Earth, all the twelve zodiacal constellations were assigned to Anunnaki counterparts, not men, but the gods. And the number, no matter what the changes, always had to add up to twelve. After forty repetitions, orbits of Nibiru since the first arrival, the Anunnaki assigned the gold mines mutiny, a text called Atrahasis, describes the events that preceded the mutiny, the mutiny itself, and its consequences. The most important consequence was the creation of the atom, 
The text tells how mankind was brought about. I want encouraged to by make Inti. sure the mutiny was directed primarily against Enlil and, and his son Lenurta, Lord who completes the foundation. Enlil demanded that the mutineers be given the maximum punishment. Inki described the impossibility charges? of continuing the harsh toil. Anu sided with Inki. But the gold was still needed for survival. So how would it be After obtained? All, At the moment of impasse, 